This episode of Amuse features the award-winning writer and producer Rodney Barnes. Rodney's body of work includes Chris Rock's Everybody Hates Chris, the animated series Boondocks, and Hulu's dramatic series Wu-Tang, An American Saga. On this episode, Rodney discusses his childhood interest in horror and superhero comics, his early production work on Blade and the Green Mile, meeting his hero Stephen King, and ultimately navigating the creative process as a writer and producer in television, film, and the comic industries. Joining me as co-host is Dan Curtis, co-owner of Zeppelin Comics. I'm your host, Stefan Schultz, and this is Amuse. All right, Rodney, thank you very much for joining us. And Dan, thank you for co-hosting as well. Rodney, let's get started with your origin story. How did you get into the industry and uh, what what inspired you to want to do what you do? I've loved comic books my entire life. Um, the first thing I read was a comic book. And I can't say I read it completely because I was like five years old. But the first thing that intrigued me in a literary sense was a comic book at my public library in Annapolis, Maryland. Um, that sort of inspired the love that I think was necessary to um, ultimately want to do this for a living. And then when I was in eighth grade, I had a teacher tell me that um, if I ever took writing seriously, I might be able to be a really good writer. And that stuck in the back of my head. That's nice. And, That's very yeah. nice that you got the encouragement at that age. Yes, I didn't take it seriously to the point where like I started to write on a regular basis or do a lot of the romantic things that I've heard other writers say they did over the course of their lives. But, you know, I'm a tall guy, I'm a big guy. And for a long time, I tried to, I figured my body in some way would be um, what I made money with. Like I tried to be a football player, I tried to be a basketball player, I tried to be a professional wrestler. And none of those things worked out. And so you know, when I started going back to a regular nine to five and was bored out of my mind, it was like, okay, there's got to be something else in life to do um, other than these things that I hate doing, this thing I hate doing every day. And so um, I took a chance and I went back to school um, and I started to work as a production assistant and assistant director on movies in the Maryland, D.C. area. And uh, that led me to a movie, Major Pain, in Virginia, um, way back when, and uh, I hit it off with Damon Wayans, who sort of taught me um, the ropes of how Hollywood kind of worked, and then eventually I moved to Hollywood and started working as a non-paid writer for years, and then I finally broke through and had an opportunity um, to work on my first sitcom. Then once I got my legs under me and I had a few credits, uh, and I worked on Marvel's Runaways for uh, Hulu, and I um, I made it clear to the folks at Marvel that I love comic books, and if anything ever came up that you thought you know you needed a writer for, I'd be happy to step in, and they gave me a shot on Falcon, and that was how I got into writing comics, and here we are. Would you say that the the opportunity on Major Pain and meeting uh, Damon Wayans was the was a kind of a turning point? And that my second question would be, how does a production assistant get access to somebody at a high level? Usually, in the sets I'm at, you don't even you know if you eat in the same building, you're lucky. You know, we're talking about a completely different time and in a completely different place. It's like um, 
this was 1991, I think, um, and it was in Washington, D.C. When you're on location, you're in a different city that's not like Los Angeles or New York, you sort of become like a big family and everybody's sort of together. At least that's the way it was back then. It seems like the Wayans have a very open family mentality on the set. I mean, for Major Payne, it was more of um, the same thing. When Major Payne, we were in Charlottesville, Virginia, and it was just us. And after a week or so uh, of being on set, Damon and I would play basketball every day. And basketball led to conversation, and conversation led to more. And we were together for like four or five months, and after a while you get to know each other and you know, it's a pretty pretty good icebreaker when you're stuck with 40 people uh, <laughs> yeah. for over a period of months. And so I'd say it was a turning point mostly for me um, in the sense that I started to see it as being real. Like uh, I sort of reverse engineered my way into being a writer um, and, and working in the industry. I never really believed that I would leave Maryland. I never really believed that um, I'd be able to cross this bridge. And through talking to Damon and talking to a few other people along the way that I gotten to know, I saw that at the very least take a shot. You know, I could always, when I went to California and I lived in my car for like eight months or so, it was like I could always go back to Maryland and live that life that I was living before. Um, but while I had the energy and the um, and the intention, why not go for it? I look at your IMDb credits, and you've got a lot of production um, uh, credits listed there. At what at what point were you saying I want to be a writer, or was that always in your in your kit? Romantically, I always wanted to be a writer. I think practically, I wanted to survive. Um, I didn't want to just <laughs> live in my car. Right. So, I would say the turning point for me was when I. Um, I was a, a stand-in for Michael Clark Duncan on the movie The Green Mile, even though we look nothing alike. And um, that came about because of my love for Stephen King, and I wanted to meet Stephen King. And uh, it's a long story short, I figured out a way to get there, and I met Frank Darabont, and we hit it off, and he gave me the job. And uh, Michael hadn't been cash yet. They were still in the audition phase. And um, But through the process of being around something that was so near and dear to me, which was Stephen King's work and Frank Darabont's work. And every day, Frank and I would talk about John Carpenter movies or Hammer movies, and we just had a love for the same thing. So we kept having these sidebars, and uh, the late, great Bernie Wrightson was the, um, he did set design or you know production design and stuff in art. So I got to know him a little bit. And uh, Constantine Nazar, who does a lot of, um, behind the scenes documentaries and stuff and we hit it off and I was starting to make a connection with like my own tribe it wasn't so much just work it was working with people who had a similar love for the things that I had love for too and we're here you know we're on set every day making something um a, it was based on a book that I loved you know I loved the little novels that uh Stephen King wrote and so <clears throat> When you make a practical connection to, okay, I'm in the industry and I'm working, I'm making a living, I can move out of my car, I can get an apartment, that's one thing. When you make an emotional connection to, okay, this is why I'm here, because of my love for this thing, and you start to make a um, 
that connection with your brain uh, and your emotions to say, where do I want to go in five years, 10 years? Do I want to kind of just be working and be happy enough that I'm here? Is that good enough? Or do I really want to be a writer? And if I really want to be a writer, I have to adjust how I do what I do and I have to start taking it seriously. I have to start behaving like a professional. And I think after the Green Mile ended, I started to behave more like a professional. Even though I didn't know exactly what that was, I knew that there was a lot that I needed to learn how to do. And circumstances just kind of worked out where um, I think maybe a year and a half, two years later, uh, I got my first WGA gig. And I think that was in 2000 or something like that. But um, yeah, I would credit the turn for that being um, the green mile. Okay. Was, so let me, let me see if I understand this correctly. You, you were a fan of Stephen King and you heard about the production uh, and so you you went saying, can I do anything? Or were you like, I'm, I know you're casting a very large black man in the role. Um, I can stand in for him because I am no. very large as well. That's not what happened. Um, <laughs> okay. That's what happened. But it wasn't like as the way you said it. I was, I was avoiding telling this story because I tell this story all the time. Sorry. It's a great story, though. What happened was um, I was a production assistant on the movie Stigmata. And um, they were having this, I knew because I've been reading the trades that they were having a, a casting call for big black men um, for the Green Mile because they were looking for the John Carfee uh, part, they were trying to cast that part. And so I've, I've been in little things from here and there in movies, but I'm not an actor. Uh, but I'm thinking, okay, this could get me close. And lo and behold, the transportation captain on the movie Stigmata was going to be the transportation captain on the Green Mile. So I went to him and I begged him. It's like, hey, man, anything that you could do, anybody I could talk to, please help open a door, anything. And he said, I have an idea. Uh, I have a 1939 paddy wagon that I have to take to Darabont's at Warner Brothers, um, Darabont's office at Warner Brothers. And uh, if you want to get in the back of it, when we, he sees the paddy wagon, um, you can be in the paddy wagon to give him some degree of like an idea of what a guy that size would look like in the paddy wagon. Wow. So I got in the paddy wagon. It was, pretty, it was a genius idea, except for the fact that there's no air conditioning or shock absorbers <laughs> in a paddy, 1939 paddy wagon. Oh my. So by the time I got to Darabont, I looked like an inmate. Um, Which is but, on, on brand. <laughs> Yes, method. That's totally method. (laughs) This is to be an inmate, but I don't think they were expecting to see an inmate that day. If you're planning to see an inmate, that's one thing. But if an inmate just pops out, it could be frightening. So um, we got to Warner Brothers and uh, opened the back door and boom, here I come out and I scare these wonderful men. And um, Frank Darabont, having had been a um, production assistant, assistant at one point in his life, appreciated how much I really wanted to be a part of the production. And so um, he hired me right then and there to be like the stand-in slash production assistant on the movie. And um, they hadn't cast Michael Clark Duncan yet. So I was there for the auditions. I think it was Bill Duke, Sean McBride, and Michael. I actually walked Michael from the parking lot. He had just gotten off his job uh, laying cable for the electric company. And uh, I walked him from the parking lot to the set. 
And he was as green as you could be, but he was very grateful and thankful to be there. And um, he was cast. And from that point forward, uh, I was there like every day. He did an amazing job. Who's who's bigger, you or him? I'm taller. He was more <laughs> wow, muscular. Really? How tall are you? I'm six seven, six eight. Wow. Um, but he was more muscular. He was more. Um, he looked like he looked. I looked like I looked. Like my <laughs> where his chest was, my stomach was. So. Wow. It's almost the same if you were able to push my stomach up to my chest. It looked like the <laughs> opposite. But you put coveralls on that, and hey, uh, we're twins. In fact, if you get, if anyone gets the uh, 25th anniversary DVD that just came out, Constantine was kind enough to put uh, me in it, and I'm sitting, I'm standing between Tom Hanks and Michael, and I'm like in standing there, like in awe. Uh, wow. Listening to these two guys talk and every once in a while getting a word in. But um, it was one of those gigs where, like I said, it sort of changes. I'd had a lot of jobs up to that point. To lesser or greater degrees, I enjoyed them all. But they were jobs. Like my first job in L.A. was um, on the movie Blade, uh, the Wesley Slipes uh, vampire. Yeah, you're listed Blade. as set production assistant. I wanted to ask what you did on that. What does that mean? Uh, that was, I was on set and if one of the actors needed anything or the director needed anything, I would scurry off and get it. And I would tell people to be quiet and I would, <laughs> uh, stand by a door and not let anybody in if we were rolling. And if there were extras, I would tell them like the blood club scene, which I'm actually in. Oh, cool. If they needed 12 more people, I would bring those 12 people in and cover them with blood and stick them over in the corner. Um, that's what I did. Uh, you know, Wesley needed something or stand by his trailer because he might need something. Um, that's what I did. Okay, thank you. And and that's funny because I was just showing Stefan some bits from Philadelphia. Yeah. And there's a there's a club scene in there too. Uh, and for those that are listening, Philadelphia is a great vampire story in comics. And congratulations on it too, and and it sounds like it's coming to a screen near us uh, sometime if in the I future. If I can finish the script, well, hopefully it will be. But yes, <laughs> was that like a little bit of a influence? Because I was thinking, if I was a vampire, uh, sex club's the way to go. Oh yeah, because no one's you, you know you don't tell your wife you're going to the sex club. You just no, leave, no, and so no. when you disappear, nobody knows. If you come back a vampire, you can always say, hey, they made me do it because they were all vampires. That's why I did it. <laughs> I've been a vampire fan since I was like a kid kid, like seven, eight years old. Um, I saw, um, I read Salem's Lot and uh, Bram Stoker's Dracula like in the same period of time. At seven years old? Oh, yeah. Wow. I loved I was a monster, like I was a Fangoria. But reading those and those, yeah, that's are those are tedious reads, at that age. Um, Stoker's is because the way the structure is with yeah. the letters. Yeah. Yes. Um, Salem's Lot, not so much because it's um, and has a little bit of that. I think that was Stevens' um, ode to Bram Stoker had and Carrie had that too, but. I mean, I didn't know any difference. I didn't have a reference point to know even what tedious meant. I was just, I saw a monster on the cover, you know, a dude with fangs, and I was in. Um, and I'd seen, you know, back 
way back when they used to have this thing called creature feature where on Saturday nights, if you stayed up until like 11 o'clock at night, a guy would get out of a coffin and um, narrate, you know, some, I was a teenage werewolf or the universal monster movies or the hammer movies or something. And I was one of those kids that would stay up and watch that kind of stuff. So those things, Kolchak, the Night Stalker, uh, the Richard Matheson movies of the week. Um, it's like all of that stuff sort of fired my imagination. And very rarely did I see like people of color in them. So I always said if I ever got the opportunity and I could tell these stories, I would tell them I, I would tell them from a certain cultural vantage point, but still be true to the genre at the same time. And that's what I try to do with Philadelphia. I, I try to still stay true to these are vampires, they're vampires in the world. And, you know, you have certain, um, you know, I cast it a particular way. And I try to under it, put themes that are culturally specific, without being so um, heavy handed with that, that it takes you out of what the story is and where I'm trying to go. I just wanted to pull one quote out that talks about cultural themes from Philadelphia, and it's, why have any system at all? Why not just be free? And I was curious if you could talk us through that. If you're talking about socialism, um, democracy, um, communism, whatever, you're talking about uh, a man-made way, a construct of how to be. And invariably within that, you know, there's going to be some form of a caste system that comes, even with the best of intentions, there's going to be, and I don't know if this is a tribal thing, I don't know if it's innate to human beings, that we try to position ourselves over other people. Somebody has to be in charge and someone has to be sort of, um, there's got to be people at the top and people at the bottom. And if I were a guy who was coming from uh, Tevin's, that's the character that said that, if I was coming from his point of view and I felt like I'd been left out of the American dream um, and I had power, I had the power of uh, immortality and I had perspective for the first time in my life. I'm not thinking about surviving because I think what happens is um, when you're dealing with lack in life, you know, your, your main mode of thought is how do I fill that void? How do I find some way to put a roof over my head, food in my stomach, my children, whatever? You're thinking about base survival. And when desperation sets in and there isn't enough, um, you do whatever you can to survive. And oftentimes systems create that dynamic. Uh, um, they say where, you are, where we happen to be on the totem pole. And if I was granted the ability to have perspective, like I could take a step out of um, kind of the construct that I had been in for the better part of my life, and I could observe from a macro level and not just being a part of it, um, I probably could conclude that the problem is the system itself. And making a new system over a period of time, if I have immortality, I don't have to worry about dying. It's sort of like the idea of Superman. Mm -hmm. Superman first came in, came on the set, I guess, in uh, late 30s, early 40s. Uh, hopefully I got that time period right. I doubt that he would say, you know what, I'm going to be an American. I'm going to just, I'm going to fight for America, you know, 
yeah, I can understand American creators made him whatever, but I think his perspective may be a little bit broader than that. Mm-hmm. Like he would be a person that would be for right or wrong, regardless of patriotism. I don't know if patriotism is something that someone who is all powerful, I think it would probably be more like uh, Alan Moore's Miracle Man, mm-hmm. where, um, you know, when you don't have limitations, you kind of shed the idea of limitations. And, you know, I look at someone like um, Tevin, and I think at a certain point he could say, hey, man, you know, if we're doing this thing that is sort of creating the problems that we have in the world, why have anything at all? You know, why not just take a chance on everybody just being them? You bring up patriotism, and it reminds me of uh, from your, your run on Falcon uh, where Sam Wilson, who plays the Falcon, um, is having a vision and he's strapped to a tree and he's being accused of not being patriotic enough. And this is kind of when he's already taken the mantle of Cap and given it back, Captain America. I have to remember that this podcast is for everybody, not just those of us initiated in comics fully. Um, but, you know, and... and that uh, they're they're bugging him about not saluting and not showing his patriotism, and he's tied to a tree. Yes. And and if you could just just speak to the the background message there. It's a funny thing with the Falcon. You know, that was my first comic book run, and I had no idea what I was doing. Uh, the first three kind of reflect a lot of bumps in the road, and by the fourth one, I always look at the fourth. That's the one that you're speaking to right now. As sort of the first for me, um, because I had to figure out, you know, just the basic stuff, how um, words and art work together. Um, You know, some of the dialogue that works in TV doesn't necessarily work on um, a page of paper. Um, A lot of things I had to work out. But by the time I got to that issue, and um, the whole thing for me was, how does a character like Falcon define himself away from the idea of being Captain America? And as a kid, when I read uh, Captain America, it was always like, you know, Falcon was the sidekick. And most of his stories were kind of sidekick stories. And even though he had great runs later on and he had the shield and he had, you know, he was Captain America and all these other things, I don't recall too many stories where we were talking about the guy under all of the superhero stuff. And kind of like how, you know, we get to know Bruce Wayne. Like, we all know Bruce Wayne's uh, origin, Batman's origin story, and we've seen him go crazy, and we've gone through all these different machinations of uh, who Batman is and who Steve Rogers is. But I, I don't recall... You know, a lot of that happening with Sam Wilson. And I wanted to separate the idea of the superhero, the man and the superhero. You know, and I wanted to get him to a place where um, he's just a guy. And that means, you know, what trauma leads you to wanting to be a hero? Because oftentimes it's not just the altruistic thing. It's also um, having gone through something, you know, comic books more often than not deal with conflict and, you know, conflict has um, 
can leave traumatic marks. And I wanted him to talk about his father and Cap and all of these other things. And in order for him to be still, he had to um, I tied him to a tree in hell. And sort of a um, metaphor for the points in our lives where we have to face ourselves and we can't run away from the idea of who we are as people. And in that idea, I think as terrifying as it is, you get to know who you really are, you get to see yourself honestly. And that's what I wanted Sam to do was to stop for a moment, take a hard look at himself and figure out who he was as a man. When you're talking about kind of telling the story behind what everybody sees, right? So Wu-Tang and American Saga, really, really excellent. Um, And I have to admit, like being here on the West Coast, (laughs) not as familiar with what was going on in the East Coast at that time. How much is creative license when you're working with real people? For the Wu-Tang show, that story is based on reality. I mean, um, uh, the RZA, the leader of the Wu-Tang Clan, um, he sort of spearheaded um, where that story would, you know, start and end. Um, he's the architect, I guess, of the show. And, um, you know, for the most of my days and our days as writers on that show, we sat and we listened to the RZA or uh, Method Man or all Ghostface, whoever, tell stories of how they came to be the Wu-Tang Clan. And we would take those stories and break them down into manageable parts. Um, in order to create what ultimately became that show. That's that. It's the same as, like, when I did American Gods. It's the same thing. We would take, like, a chapter of the book and break it down into pieces and say, okay, um, you know, for the season that I did of uh, American Gods, we are working on chapter eight, I believe. And, um, you know, we take parts of the book and we okay, what's the best way to dramatize this? Um, and that's what we did with Wu-Tang. In regards to Wu-Tang, were you reached out to or, um, to, or did you pursue them to be a bar- part of that project? They reached out to me. Uh, I was working on American Gods, and I got a call one day from RZA while I was on set. As um, one does. Yes. <laughs> yes we all do, yes. <laughs> We talked for about an hour, and we talked about comic books, and we talked about uh, a whole uh, plethora of things. But, um, yeah, they reached out to me. Nice, nice. What about, uh, let's go back to Everybody Hates Chris. Tell me about the origins of that. Um, Very similar. Um, I was working on a show with my wife and kids with Damon Wayans. I wonder how that happened. (laughs) And... um, we had just gotten canceled. Uh, we found out on a Thursday we had gotten canceled. And I think that Friday I got a call from my agent saying, Chris Rock's got a new sitcom and they're looking for writers. And I had an interview, I think, on the following Tuesday. And by that next Friday I had the job. Um, but the great thing about that show for me beyond you know my friendship with Chris uh, was I 
that I don't know if you've watched the show, but there's a lot of voiceover in it. I wrote and produced the majority of that. Oh, nice. Um, so I got an opportunity to record, write the stuff, uh, walk over to the ADR uh, building with Chris every like twice a week. And we would sit there and just do, I would write the thing. He would say the thing and he would say, yeah, that, that works. That doesn't work. And then uh, I would place it in the show later in editing. And I'd never done any of this before, you know? Um, so I had no idea what I'm doing. It seemed to have worked out, but uh, yeah, it was an opportunity to like produce for real. For the most part, you get those titles of producer because you wrote the script and you're at a certain level and you know, you're working with um, actors and making sure that the show gets made. But this was an opportunity to work more on the, the technical side of um, how a show worked. And like I said, it was a valuable, incredible um, education for me. How was writing for somebody like Chris Rock, who is quite a prolific writer himself? Was, it, was he a handful? Or did he argue with you? <laughs> no, or was he like, okay, it was fun. I mean, the great thing about Chris is there's no real filter. So if he thinks something's funny, he'll tell you. If he thinks something isn't funny, he'll tell you. Um, he, uh, I mean, again, uh, one of my uh, one of my best friends. Um, we talk a lot, and um, it's still the same way. I think um, you know our ability to just speak openly and honestly. Uh, to one another made the collaboration work the way that it did and spawned the friendship that it has. But uh, for me, being able to have friends like that really helped with perspective because I didn't know a lot of famous people. I didn't know a lot of um, legendary people growing up. And what you find is there's a way that people who are successful think and that thinking sometimes can be different than how unsuccessful people think. How so? The way they plan, the way they execute, the way their expectations work. When you work in Hollywood, you're told no a lot. Like I hear no 90% of the time. Like we're here talking right now because of the times that people said yes, not because of the times that people said no. So, you know, I've written hundreds, literally uh, developed hundreds of shows and hundreds of scripts that didn't sell, you know, or times where people just, you know, weren't feeling it or didn't, I didn't get the job or things didn't work out, whatever. And if you aren't emotionally built for that, it becomes, you know, you can, it can develop for, it can take whatever insecurity that's there and um, make it grow. And, you know, certainly for me in the early stages, I, it's hard to get a gauge on whether or not you're actually good at this thing, you know, whether or not um, you've got a future in it or a career in it. And I bought a lot of my insecurities from Maryland to Hollywood with me and my fear that it was going to go away at any point. Because you don't know. It's like uh, sort of like being in the circus. You got a job until they say you don't have a job and then you have to go find another job. And I come from a world where you take your application into the place and they give you a job and you can work there for 20 years and retire. Right. That's what I knew. 
that's the life I knew. That's what I saw my parents do, my grandparents do, and everybody around me sort of lived that life. And now I'm in this thing that I don't really know, that I'm sort of not prepared for because I don't understand how it works completely. And I'm looking around at everybody thinking everybody must be a genius. And I'm just some guy that, you know, kind of got in the back door. And at some point, they're going to figure me out and kick me out of this place. Um, and when you're walking around with that in your head and you're hearing no all the time, it's easy to put those two together yeah. and um, not necessarily be a very happy person. And add that to the, the emotional, the creative people are most, you know, they're so passionate about what they do. They Anything negative is exponentially problematic. Exactly. All of that. Yeah. And understanding other people's personalities, uh, understanding how empathy works uh, within a business like that, um, understanding that every nobody really has answers. Everybody's trying to figure it out, too. So how do you get past those no's? Because you were very successful in, in that. Uh, I can only tell it in, in two ways. Um, for the first 10 years of my career, I was incredibly fortunate because I was on a show that went for six seasons and then I was on another show for four seasons. And then I worked on another show at the same time I was doing both of those shows. So in my mind, I was going to work forever. This was, I was never going to have a down period. This is going to be great. Rodney's going to have a straight shot all the way through <laughs> his career. Excellent. And then it didn't, the bottom fell out. And um, I think it was around 2000, between 2010 and 2013, I all of the shows I was on got canceled. Um, I went through a really bitter divorce. Um, I got sick. I had a heart attack, liver failure, and kidney failure, all in like boom, 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 within like a four-month period of time. Wow. And I was in CSI 9 for the better part of six months on and off. And there's a guy who is a pastor and a studio executive who had befriended me years before. And he came to see me, and I was like this angry, like sick guy who's like, um, just why me? And, and it was right before I was about to go into surgery. And he prayed for me, and it was one of those prayers where, like, I wish you would have saved that for the eulogy. It was such a great prayer. And um, he, we had a short conversation, and I was asking, like, why did I get here? Like, how did I? I went through all of this, lived in my car, went through all of this stuff, and here I am, and you know I'm doing okay financially and all of this, but then why am I hitting this resistance all of a sudden? And he asked me why I write, and I went back to where I went back to with you guys when we started, where when I was a kid and that period of innocence when I'm making monster models and excited to see the next Hammer movie, and oh my God, there's a new Stephen King book out. Um, I had my own ideas. Um, I didn't believe in them, but I had my own ideas. And it was like an emotional connection. I wasn't even thinking about uh, money. I was just thinking about this cool thing that I wanted to be a part of. And he said, so it was a heart thing, right? And I said, yes. And so he said, what are you working from now? Are you, is that where you're working from now? And I said, no. He said, well, what are you doing now? I said, well, I'm making money. And he said, well, that's kind of a head thing, right? It's like, yeah. He said, I think if you could reconnect to your heart, things would start to go in your favor at the very least. And that stuck with me. 
Very and insightful. Yeah. I sort of made a promise to myself if I ever made it out of the hospital, I would start to do the things that I really wanted to do versus the things that I just did to make money. And I wouldn't operate from the same fear-based, insecurity-infused way of looking at um, the industry and myself. And so I think in that period of time between 2013 and today, I became a nicer person. I became less intense. I started to, um, you know, the comic books and all of that brought me back to a place of innocence. And it opens you up to an idea of being able to give rather than just worrying about the next thing that's going to happen for you. Um, you know, it's not desperation anymore. It's a place of, man, I can't wait to go and write the next issue of Philadelphia, or I can't wait to work on the Lakers TV show um, or whatever it is that I happen to be in. Most of the stuff that I'm doing right now are things that I always wanted to do. Not saying I didn't want to do the things that I did in the beginning, but I don't think um, I gave it much thought. I was happy just to be there. I was happy just to be working. I didn't put as much of, it was my head. I was operating from my head. Was there a particular project that spawned from that? You said a lot of them are that way. Was there one that started it? Yeah. Um, when I did vinyl for HBO, um, I think here's, here was the problem with my sense of humor. My sense of humor was sort of born out of, of like uh, when you're at the cafeteria table and you and your friends are making fun of each other. Mm-hmm. That was sort of my sense of humor. Um, I didn't have much else. And so when I would find things, uh, was sort of a sarcasm type thing, um, which under sarcasm is anger and insecurity. So it worked. Um, but that was sort of where my head was. It wasn't necessarily developing any other aspects of whatever I have to offer, um, you know, the industry in regards to my writing or my writing. So when I, when I got vinyl, um, it was a different experience. It was, I had to work with all of the, all of me, not just a part of me. And I was able to become comfortable enough and secure enough that I could operate parts of my creativity and tap into parts of my creativity that some of the other work hadn't necessarily required me to tap into in the same way. And I found like, uh, it's sort of like when you find your tribe in life, uh, when you find, I liken it to, um, when you find the music or whoever your musical artist is that speaks to you for the first time and you fall in love with that artist is sort of like that, but with yourself, like, man, this is what I always wanted to do. Um, and being able to just be in that environment with a lot of like-minded folks, I was like, yeah, this is, this is kind of where I belong. This episode of Muse is sponsored by Zeppelin Comics. Located in the heart of historic downtown Benicia, California, Zeppelin Comics is your source for comics, graphic novels, games, and gifts. A comic book store like no other. You can find Zeppelin Comics online at zeppelincomics.com. It sounds like you have a lot of ideas at any given time. Is that fair? 
Yeah, I, I probably will come up with 10 after we get off the phone. For sure. <laughs> yeah. And and so I'm curious when you're when you're cultivating that, when you're you're working it out and you're weeding through, are you giving considerations to like what type of medium you're gonna you're gonna develop this for? Like when you were putting Philadelphia together, were you like this is gonna make an epic comic? A great TV show too. Yeah. For Philadelphia, I had tried for years to make it a movie to make it a TV show, to make it a myriad of things. And then once I got into comics, I kind of said, hey, why not try this? Um, why not try to do it as a comic book? And it just so happened that um, the artists on the book, Jason, Sean, Alexander, and I are friends. And so uh, we, go to we would go to dinner like once a month, twice a month, and I would pitch him stuff, and he would pitch me stuff. And... Both of us hated our ideas. <laughs> and then one day, uh, I pitched him this vampire thing, and it's called Philadelphia, and, and it's this, and John Adams, and whatever. And he said, hey, I like that. And I didn't believe him because he had been drinking. And um, we left it at that. And then a week later, when he was sober, he said, that Philadelphia thing, have you, you know, put it on paper or whatever. And I said, you know, not yet. It's mostly all in my head. I said, you should race up to Dell. Let's see if we could do that. And so we took it to a couple of places. And then he um, he had the relationship at Image because he had been doing Spawn at the time. And uh, he took it to Image and um, they decided they'd publish it. It passed the creative sobriety test. There you go. There you go. Not all you can do. If it's still a good idea in the morning. <laughs> yes. Excellent. I have had a few meetings like that. It was great last night. Oh, it's a terrible idea now. <laughs> I have dreams like that. Like sometimes <laughs> I have a dream where I'm like, this is the greatest idea in the world. As soon as I wake up, I'm going to do this thing. And then by the time I wake up, I'm like, it was the stupidest thing anyone's ever thought. Yeah, why do I think that I'm stupid? <laughs> so for the new Lakers show coming to HBO, uh, uh -huh. was it? Is it kind of going through the same process you did with Wu-Tang where you're getting to sit with all those guys and, and chat about no. their life experience? No, this is different. Um, this is uh, Max Bornstein who actually hired me for vinyl. And um, we've kind of been married. We actually creatively, Max, when it comes to television, Max is, um, I'll say he's the husband for today. Um, we go back and forth. Sometimes I'm the wife. Sometimes um, he's the <laughs> wife. But uh, he and I, he hired me for uh, uh, this. And um, we sort of have become partners on the journey. And it's he and I. Like every day, certainly through COVID, we get on a Zoom and um, we argue and we fight about what the story should be. It's a creative fight. There's always respect within the fight we never say personal things i know he's thinking personal things <laughs> to say about me but um because we love each other and we enjoy what we do the fight is very passionate uh it's based on um jeff perlman's book uh showtime and so that's the foundation that we start from but we also did a lot of research uh on um just that period of time for all most of the guys you know, Magic Kareem, um, just about everybody, Jerry West, they have a book. Mm -hmm. So and 
there's a myriad of articles about them in Sports Illustrated or someplace along the way. They've been profiles. So there's a lot of information out there. And um, we've read through a lot of it, um, just about all of it every day. Um, our great assistants are sending us, read this article, read that article, read this thing. Hey, this thing happened in 1979. And we take all of the pieces of that and we sort of um, dramatize that. And fortunately, because I'm older than Max, um, I actually lived through that period. That was sort of my period where um, I remember when basketball was tape delayed, pro basketball was tape delayed. Uh, you had to stay up until 11 o'clock, 11.30 to watch the game that's already happened and uh, find out what happened. Uh, it wasn't like, like right now, um, you know, basketball, the ball's on 24-7. And I remember it going from that to having Larry Bird and Magic Johnson be like these stars and changing the game and then eventually Michael Jordan and, you know, what it's become. So being having lived through that period of time, I remember a lot of the um, ancillary things that were happening in the world around that. So I can bring that in, you know, Jimmy Carter and the gas crisis and, uh, where we were politically from Carter to Reagan and, you know, a lot of just things that you typically wouldn't find if you're just telling the story of a basketball team at a particular moment in time. But because um, the great Adam McKay is, uh, you know, our producer and, you know, secession and so many other things that Adam's done uh, has is so layered um, it affords us the opportunity of creating a show that's layered as well. So um, it's a fun ride. That's cool. I, I was thinking that you and Kareem have such common ground with both being comic book writers and everything. that And extremely tall. Yeah, extremely tall. Yes. <laughs> Kareem is taller. Kareem <laughs> is iconically like one of the greatest athletes that's ever lived. I wouldn't put myself... I'm at the far end of that spectrum. I'm one of the worst athletes that's ever lived. But on the athletic spectrum. True. Yes, <laughs> on the athletic spectrum, I'm the worst and he is the best. But yes, he has a very creative mind and um, not just comic books, but he writes television as well. And, um, you know, his op-ed pieces and um, he's a really brilliant guy. I actually sat in front of him on a plane one time and was too afraid to say anything. Wow, missed opportunity. Yes, yes. Maybe the opportunity will come back around again. Who knows? <laughs> there you go. I'm surprised you haven't had a chance to talk since there is a lot of uh, common ground there, especially with the project you're working on. Sometimes when you're doing, you know, stories about people, talking to people about who they are actually muddies the waters a little bit. Uh-huh. We're making characters out of real people. We're not really telling the stories of real people. Um, if that makes sense. Sure. The thing that we we do kind of walks with reality, but it's not reality. Mm-hmm. Like some of it's true, some of it's made up. Um, and where that line, sometimes you go in and out of that, um, you know, respectfully, but you go in and out of that um, framework. It's not necessarily just, uh, you know, pure truth. Right. Yeah, because I was curious with, with watching Wu-Tang and everything, uh one of the episodes you wrote, uh, All That I Got Is You, which tells such a great love story, like a young love story. But 
the aspect I was curious about is the opening scene on the bus and, and throughout the episode is writing a female character with agency. Yes. And I was hoping you could talk just, just for a minute about that. When, you, when you're making a show like Wu-Tang, that is um, mostly about the guys. And in general, um, it's a very testosterone-driven you know, narrative. It's mostly the guys doing guy things. And I remember when we were breaking the story, one of the things that I wanted to do was create a counterbalance to the, that, to create um, some semblance of people under that. Um, it's so easy to get lost in the, um, the action and the drama that you forget that um, there's real stuff happening at the same time. And love is an important part of, of that thing that's happening, especially when you're young people. Um, and I wanted to, uh, I wanted to be able to speak to that, uh, that even in the midst of them scrambling to become, you know, this uh, world famous rap group and economically to make it out of poverty and all of that, um, there's still moments that are soft and beautiful and tender. I think that that's a um, that's an aspect of being a human being, regardless of what culture you're in or where you're from. You know, there's there's that. And so, from the female place, you know, we were we were blessed to have um, a lot of females in the room, and um, who certainly lent in if I was off at all. Uh, you know. It would go like this. It wouldn't go like that. It wasn't too much of that, but they were always there to lend a hand. And, you know, I, I sort of understood with anything that I've written that's of any quality, I usually put myself in it somewhat. I usually project onto it some aspect of how I see the world or how I felt at a particular time or, um, you know, in Philadelphia in the second issue when Tevin's talking to his grandmother, that was when my grandmother was dying and I was at her bedside. Um, I infused how I felt into that scene. And it's similar like with Wu-Tang, I remember being in love and being young and the idealism that comes with that and when reality kind of um, steps into that, um, into that idealism, what can happen, the dangers of that when you're not prepared. Um, and so it's more of trying to channel myself, their story and reality into one thing and telling the best story you can, the most honest story. Yeah. Excellent personal insight there. Thank you very much, Ronnie. Um, we have one more question. I, uh, we are a little bit over time. Yeah. I, I appreciate you staying sure, it's on. Fine. Yeah, it's, um, fine. It's, it's kind of on a lighter note. It's, it's what we're calling the wow moment, uh, the you won't believe it. So if you were to go back and talk to your teenage self and say, you are going to do this, you're going to meet this person, you wouldn't believe it, but you're going to be in this situation. What would that moment be that you would tell your teenage self? There are no light moments. Um, when you say this is a lighter moment, there's no light moments. My teenage years were really, really hard. I had a lot of um, family problems and um, self-image problems and insecurities and fears. And um, high school was really tough for me. And I actually, for a long time, didn't see past um, 
you know, where one day I was going to go. I didn't even know if there was a future of sorts. But that said, the thing that's always sustained me, that's given me a modicum of hope, even in the worst of circumstances, was creativity. Again, going back to comic books and music and art and that was always a place for me to lean on. So I think Stephen King has been the driving force of horror for me my entire life. Again, I remember being a little kid, reaching up on those paperback spiral uh, things and getting Carrie and getting The Shining and Salem's Lot and uh, all of Firestar and all of those books as a kid. And no matter how lonely I was or how hurt I was or how um, socially awkward I felt that I could always go in my room and shut the door and read one of those books and feel better and feel connected to something. Um, so I would tell myself that it's going to be all right. Um, I think at that time I wasn't sure if it would be, and even sometimes now at this stage of life, I still wonder if it's going to be, but I would tell myself that it would be okay that whatever you encounter, you're strong enough to be able to uh, withstand it. Um, and I wouldn't press so hard. I wouldn't uh, beat myself up so much. I think I would be, um, I try to enjoy life a little bit more. That's what I would tell my older self would tell my younger self. That is a, a profound uh, answer. Thank you very much. Rodney, we really appreciate your time today. Um, looking forward to the Lakers project. That's going to be awesome. Dan, thank you very much for, for co-hosting today. Absolutely. And, you know, you started with the Green Mile story and that your objective was to meet Stephen King, and he's been such an influence. And I feel like the end of the story is you didn't get to meet Stephen King. Stephen King, I have a big picture of Stephen King in my library of the two of us hugging and Stephen putting his head on my shoulder. And um, it was uh, one of the greatest days of my life meeting him on set of The Green Mile. He signed all of my books. He gave me advice. I followed him around. I think if I was in, in public doing this, they would have called the police. But um <laughs> I've got this large black man following me around. I don't know why. But in that setting, it was okay. Um, and I followed him everywhere. I don't think I did my job that day. They could have fired me. But everywhere he went, I went. And I listened. And I, I remember the set photographer saying, when I got back to the dark room and I edited all of my pictures, Rodney is in all of them. Um, somewhere in the back. Listening in the corner somewhere, um, but it was one of the most. Um, it was one of the best days of my life. Off the record, did he live up to meet your hero moment? He exceeded Excellent. my hero moments. He um, he was so kind. Uh, he was so gracious. He was so. He was my, and he still is. He was my hero, and it's like um, I needed a bridge. There's a theme to my life, to my career, certainly, where I kind of look for permission to uh, execute my um, my dreams. Um, I'm looking for permission all the time. And sort of being able to be in the midst of someone whose name had loomed so large in my head, to be able to actually shake his hand, to see that he was a real person, 
sort of reinforced to me that this is real. I know that sounds crazy because obviously the books come out and somebody's got to write them. But, you know, I, I never really put two and two together that this was a real person doing this thing. And um, that day being able to meet him was, uh, that was it. That was it for me. Excellent. Thank you That's for sharing awesome. it. And even though he said off the record, I think we're still going to keep oh, yeah. that in. Yeah. That, oh, yeah. yeah. Please, you can keep it. You can keep <laughs> Unless you it. said, no, he was a jerk. I will mean, <laughs> no, no, leave no, that out. It was wonderful. I have met people um, who were less than what my fantasy of idea yeah. of who they were was. But he, um, he, was, he exceeded all expectations. He was fantastic. Yeah, I was producing a show for PBS where we had an artist on, and I really revered him, and I spent two weeks with him, and, and he was horrible. And I, I tried to talk PBS to cut it. What I've come to find is you never know what someone's going through. I was just listening to an interview of an actor who met Chadwick Boseman like on his last movie. And uh, he sort of saw him as a diva because he had like this whole team of people who were there taking care of him. Uh, and he never knew the whole time that the guy is suffering cancer. Fighting cancer, yeah. And fighting cancer. And uh, so he had no idea. He judged him based upon that one day. And I know that there are people that if they judge me on my worst day, they would say, that guy's an asshole. Yeah. And so I think, you know, to, to frame a moment as who and what a human being is isn't always fair. Um, you should always try to be kind. But I can say, you know, working in, a, in an intense industry, um, every, it's hard to always be your best self. Um, it's not impossible. And some people certainly do it, and I strive to do it these days, certainly as I become more comfortable with who I am. But, you know, I, I've, I've come to find that I remember I was a Wu-Tang one day. We were in... Um, it was like 30 degrees. No, it was two degrees, um, like literally two degrees. Oh and we were off the water um, in, a, in a park in New York. And I am at an age and a stage of my life where I can't take cold anymore. When I was a kid, I could. I can't anymore. <laughs> and I would sneak off set there was a store like maybe a hundred feet away from where our base camp was. And I would sneak away to go in that store just so I could get warm and come back. <laughs> and there was a production assistant who was locking up and um, he was locking up the set and they called like, you know, we're about to roll. So I walked back and the guy didn't, he was a day player. He didn't know who I was. And um, he was like, uh, excuse me, do you have ID? And he said it like a cop. And at that moment, oh, gosh. I did not want to be asked that question. I didn't want to be there. I didn't want any. There was nothing about this moment that was good for me. And I was like, you know, I'm a producer, man. I wrote this episode, whatever. And I kept walking. And I got about 10 feet away from him. And I was like, that was a real dick way to be. And I went back to the guy and I apologized. And he was like, cool, man, it's all good, whatever. And we hugged and, and all of that. And I went out of my way for the rest of the day to try to um, make him feel like I really did mean that I didn't mean that moment between us. Um, 
if he just judged me on that moment before the apology, that guy would probably never want to work with me again and frame an idea of who I was as a person. Um, so I say that to say we all, you know, we, we live in a world sometimes that is that operates on absolutes. Um, if you say something out of line, you are a bad person and you are you have a label attached to you. If you uh, figure out a way to always say the right thing, um, people say you're a good person. I don't think any of us are all good or all bad. I think that there are people who certainly stray into the realm of being hurtful consistently and you know, take advantage of people and hurt people. Those people are in a certain category. But for people who just wake up on the wrong side of the bed sometimes, and unfortunately, um, you know, some people catch the brunt of that. Having been one of those people, um, you know, I'd like to say that uh, maybe some empathy for both sides of the coin might be in order. Good advice. For sure. And I, like, personal thank you. I shot you a message on Twitter and you responded. And not only did you respond when we invited you to to come up to the shop to do a signing, um, but she said yes. And just the fact that you said something, we send so many messages out to so many different people that that we want to talk to, that we want to we want to host and promote and and everything. And even if the answer had been no, just a response. Just a response. Yeah. So, like you are a wonderful, wonderful person in my book because you answered <laughs> your your Twitter message. I agree. You know, and and we weren't ultimately able to to get it all together. And and hopefully, you know that uh, open invite. Uh, and once the world goes back to some semblance. <laughs> yeah. No, I, I appreciate that. And, and I think that comes from that openness to, to talk to folks really comes from I'm a fan like everybody else. You know, I don't see myself in this category where, um, I'm, you know, I'm this big deal who is above talking to someone or above responding. I try to, um, you know, to stay in a place where every Wednesday I go to a comic book shop, Earth 2 Comics in Sherman Oaks. Hey, Carr, how's it going? Carr's um, a friend, yeah. Yes, Carr's a good guy. And um, I'm still a fan. I still get my books CGC'd and, you know, I'm still looking for, you know, today I wanted to pick up these Neil Adam Conans that I've always um, – because I dig Barry Winsor Smith and uh, Neil Adams a lot, and I'm always looking for their work. And um, I'm still a fan, and I still like to be connected to, um, you know, the people who take the time out to build this uh, industry. You need comic book shops. You know, without comic book shops, how do we connect with um, the reader and the, the buyer and all of that? So. Um, I'm still that guy. You know, Jeffy's Comic World in Baltimore was the first comic book shop I ever did business with. I remember when comics used to be at the local drugstore or 7-Eleven or whatever, and convenience store, and they went from that to comic shops. And I remember going to Steve Jeffy's uh, basement, you know, to where he would sell them out of his basement. And, um, you know, I, I always want, whether it's now, when I'm a part of it, beyond me, for comic shops to exist, they're important. And um, I don't want comics to go away. So anything that I can do 
to talk to folks, to keep folks interested, folks who are interested in what I do or, you know, whatever. I'm happy to talk. Awesome. Thank you so much. Great stories, Rodney. Fascinating. Thanks, guys. Thank you, sir. Have a good one. Until next time, take it easy. And thank you, the audience, for listening to this episode of Amuse. Please check the show notes for links on some of the topics we discussed. For more conversations with creative professionals, please hit the subscribe button. Until next time, that's a wrap.